Welcome to Final Examination, a podcast about the end of the world. I'm Paul Musgrave, a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. During the fall 2020 semester, four teams of students have researched, reported, and produced stories about how people have faced the end of the world right here in Massachusetts. This episode tells the story of the Quabbin Reservoir and how Boston's thirst drowned four Massachusetts towns. It shows how a mix of greed for resources and wealth and power still threaten communities and ways of life around the globe today. The Swift River Valley in western Massachusetts was once home to four bustling small towns and a handful of even smaller hamlets, which several thousand residents inhabited for centuries, carving out unique culture and pleasant community. The towns of Dana, Prescott, Enfield, and Greenwich contained a mixture of folks who had been pushed out of the city by the Great Depression and those whose families had lived there for generations, all of them just looking to make an honest living and enjoy a peaceful life here. Little did they know. Within a few years, they'd be forced out by billions of tons of water crashing down upon the lands they once cherished. The thirst of the city of Boston had grown too great, and the towns of the Swift River Valley were sacrificed to quench it. Oh, they tried to fight back. A fruitless struggle to save the land they loved. A fight that so many other people around the globe continue to wage to save their small worlds from destruction. The only world they knew, gone to satisfy the demands of a distant power. Imagine the only world you knew growing up, deliberately drowned under billions of cubic meters of water. It's uh, quite a sight to see a place where you once lived all covered with water. It's uh, amazing. That's the voice of Harry Stagg, who attended Hillside School in Greenwich in 1916 and 1917. In the next 20 minutes, we're going to investigate how such an atrocity could be allowed to happen similarities between the destruction of the Quabbin and more modern examples, and whether the flooding of the valley was justified. I'm Jack Paris. And I'm Nick Dostal. And in today's episode of Final Examination, we're diving into the worlds lost in the creation of the Quabbin Reservoir, how the same environmental justice issue is occurring to marginalized communities around the world, and what could be done to fight back. Stay tuned to find out. This podcast is supported by Elitist Angels, 501c3 nonprofit that provides clothing to asylum seeking children and their families. To learn more about Elitist Angels and support their mission, please visit elitistangels.com. That's A L I T A S angels.com. Now let's back up a little bit here. For many residents in the Quabbin Valley area, life was relatively quiet and isolated. Much of the land was used for farming, a pursuit which demanded hard work from family members old and young alike, according to Harry Stagg. Oh yes, we had the large livestock, hogs or pigs, milk cows, beef cattle, and all the other related livestock. But the interests of the roughly 3,000 residents of the towns of Dana, Prescott, Enfield, and Greenwich were simply a drop in the bucket compared to the vast needs of the rapidly growing Greater Boston area. Preceding the construction of the Quabbin, Boston was struggling for resources. It was growing insatiably, both in population and territory, 
which resulted in its water supply being strained about every 20 years. The waters from which the city derived its drinking water was so foul that typhoid epidemics were plaguing the city. Meanwhile, fire after fire devastated Boston, as firefighters did not have enough water to combat the onslaught of flames. The municipal government of Boston needed a dramatic change, and the health and safety of their people depended on it. Their previous solutions, well, the Wachusett Reservoir had already been exhausted by the 1920s, and the Charles and Mystic Rivers were heavily polluted as part of the onset of urbanization in the area, and, nearing the end of viable options, Boston set its sight on the Swift River Valley to quench its thirsts. Surveyors had been eyeing the area as a potential source for a new water supply as early as 1895, and by the 1920s, it was finally time to strike. The situation had finally become desperate enough that the Swift River Valley plan emerged as a viable option to secure the water supply of the greater Boston area. While relatively far from metropolitan Boston, the Swift River Valley was perfect, a ridge-lined valley with two small gaps at the end where it could be dammed to create a reservoir with the potential to hold billions of gallons of water behind it, the Swift River Valley held the key to saving Boston from its plight, with only the homes, histories, and livelihoods of several thousand people standing in the way. But the Swift River Valley had one more quality that made it ideal for this project. The surveyors believed that the citizens of the town would not put up much of a fight. Dot Fry member of the Swift River Valley Historical Society, has more on the geographical importance of the valley and the assessment of the citizens. The Swift River Valley Historical Society is a preeminent source on Quabbin information and research and houses a museum in New Salem, as well as preserves other important sites throughout Western Massachusetts. Dot, the administrative coordinator, was kind enough to speak with us. Here she is. And geographically, the area of the Swift River fit well for, because it was a depression between hills. There was already a lot of water there. They could displace these people with without much of a fight. So that's the one they chose. Um, in fact, according to Clarence Mitchell, who lived in the small village of Packardville near Enfield, many residents in the area found the idea absurd and didn't even believe the project would actually be completed. In 1898, I think it was, they were surveying for this quabbin. We thought that was real funny. They'll never do a thing like that. And straight from the Swift River Valley Historical Society, Dot Fry has more on the reaction from the citizens. The beginning of it, a lot of people got word of it and knew it was inevitable. So they started selling their property to the MDC. The people of the four towns set to be crushed under those billions of gallons of water were obviously in staunch resistance to the plan. Most of the residents had lived their whole lives in the Swift River Valley. Where would they go? Where would they work? And chiefly, what would happen to the communities they grew up in? Again, from Dot. Eventually, the people that were trying to stay eminent domain took their property. They moved either close by Orange or Athol, where there was industry so those people could work where they went as far as maybe Springfield. There was no consideration for helping them move. They were, they were on their own. There was a spark of hope when downstream, the state of Connecticut decided to take legal action and launch the lawsuit in hopes of halting the proposed reservoir. It seemed as though someone was finally ready to stand up for the little guy 
to protect the interests of 3,000 citizens against an ailing city with over 200 times the population. Yeah, right. In fact, Connecticut didn't care at all about the people of the Swift River Valley. As hydrologist and UMass professor Timothy Randier explains, There is another one which people don't understand is the downstream of it. Say, for example, all the communities which are downstream are impacted by the flow of the river. And so from fisheries to agriculture to uh, drinking water supplies and everything, now by uh, restr uh, restricting that flow of water, now you're impacting the huge amount of uh, uh, populations which are downstream. They have to find some other alternate ways to actually supplement that water. Now, no longer the river is flowing there for full level. It's, a, it's you know, it, it, and, and the sediment is not the same. The fish populations are impacted. So that economic and ecological impacts are usually also much higher where people are indirectly forced to move out of the region. Connecticut's lawsuit was an attempt to claim the flow of the Swift River Valley that they argued Massachusetts was illegally stealing from them. Unfortunately, for both Connecticut and the citizens of the valley, the suit was struck down by the Supreme Court and the bulldozers were promptly brought out to eliminate the towns of Dana, Prescott, Enfield, and Greenwich from the face of the earth. Yet, the four towns were not inherently doomed. The political process beyond the creation of the Quabbin was mired in corruption and two men in particular had plenty to gain from driving these four towns towards extinction. One of the most powerful individuals in Massachusetts during the time of the Quabbin's construction was a man by the name of James Michael Curley. He served as governor from 1935 to 1937, but also served as mayor of Boston four separate times and held the seat in Congress for two terms. Curley was a well-known member of the patronage system that dominated the political sphere of the time a man brought to power by graft and blackmail. He was indicted by federal prosecutors for mail fraud in 1947 during an election for mayor, which he still won. Tales of Curley's questionable actions during his political tenure are endless, but his involvement in the Quabbin Reservoir Project stands above the rest. Here, the interests of Curley and those close to him took full priority. The construction of the Quabbin Reservoir was to be his grand career-defining megaproject during which he awarded high-paying construction jobs to political allies amidst the worst days of the Great Depression. At the time, the aqueduct required to bring the water back to Boston was to become the longest tunnel in the world. Work was hard to come by, and the monumental effort would require a significant amount of manpower. Thousands of construction positions were available, and many of them were awarded directly by Curley himself. The efforts of those contracted by Curley, however, were not appreciated by the residents of the four towns. Workers would drink and brawl at the local bars. Arrests soared while the workers started the initial phases of the reservoir. Then, to top it all off, Enfield's historic Congregational Church was burned six days before its 150-year anniversary, an act of arson often attributed to the workers contracted by Curley. However, perhaps due to the impending doom of the town, or perhaps due to the power and influence of Curley and his friends, no investigation was conducted, and no charges were ever filed. The other actor who took advantage of the situation to further their individual interests, and I swear this is a real name, not some like made-up alien stuff, was X.H. Goodenough, the chief engineer of the project. He was an influential man with intricate political connections, so if he wanted the Quabbin job completed, <laughs> you bet his voice is going to be heard. Other engineers recommended plans involving alternate water supplies, which would have satisfied Boston's needs and spared the residents of the Swift River Valley. What do you know? 
but only Goodnow and his allies were selected to the state's advisory board to determine the best course of action. Now, to say the destruction of the towns and the flooding of the valley was the sole responsibility of these two men would be disingenuous. What examining these two actors does show, however, is that the weight of individual interests plays a significant role in such political decisions. People won and people lost in this project. It's not very hard to see who lost. The fate of the four towns was sealed when the Swift River Act was signed into law in 1927, allowing for the flooding of the Swift River Valley and the construction of the reservoir. The citizens were up against the Massachusetts government, corrupt politicians, and most importantly, the needs of the nearly 800,000 people of Boston. Most of the valley people were just humble farmers. What manufacturing had existed beforehand dried up well before this time. They were poor and small in numbers, and there was not much the citizens of the towns could do to fight against the coordinated political interests of the time. The respective town councils tried to put up a fight, but it was pretty apparent that a struggle would be fruitless. The most important monuments and churches were selected to be moved. The ties that held the community together, be it churches, schools, or dance halls, were torn down and left to be forgotten. Defeated, disenfranchised, and dishonored, the people of the Swift River Valley took their $100 per acre compensation from the government and were forcibly removed by eminent domain, leaving their homes forever. With the former inhabitants of the Swift River Valley gone and the four towns disincorporated, workers began dismantling the homes, schools, and businesses bit by bit. Then finally, billions of cubic meters of water came crashing down to wipe what was once a thriving community off the face of this planet. So, why does all of this matter to you now? It would be easy to think of the formation of the Quabbin as something that we do not need to worry about because it is part of history rather than the present. But the politics and power structures that led to the creation of the Quabbin at the expense of the existence of four towns have not gone away. In 2020, some 90 years after construction began, the Quabbin Reservoir and the towns that were sacrificed to create it have largely faded into the depths of history. Even Joe Kennedy III, who unsuccessfully challenged Ed Markey for his Senate seat this year, forgot the story of the towns when he accused Markey of failing to represent Dana, Enfield, and Prescott in a campaign email. Markey's team reassured voters that the senator aims to deliver and lead for all Massachusetts towns, not submerged underwater. The same process of powerful interests disenfranchising the vulnerable by taking a vital source of power and connection, which is their land and community, is not a one-off thing limited to the Swift River Valley. The U.S. is still a country with a rapidly expanding energy infrastructure. Developing energy infrastructure requires land, and often, the people who own the land that would be most convenient do not want to give it up. Governments and corporations rip what is dear to such populations out of their hands, constantly, in the name of progress and profit, with the scale of this phenomenon ever increasing. For example, the most high-profile case of this issue was completed very recently, in 2012. The Three Gorges Dam built upon the Yangtze River provides massive amounts of hydroelectricity to power China's rapidly growing economy, more than 20 times that of the Hoover Dam. But just a decade prior, that same part of the Yangtze River was home to roughly 1.3 million people whose families had farmed those riverbanks for centuries. With a much greater population being pushed out of their ancestral homes with measly compensation, 
a much more robust protest movement broke out and clashes with state police followed. Yet these people suffered the same fate as the people of the Quabbin in the end, getting kicked off their land and watching as billions of tons of water crashed over the communities they once loved. As Professor Randier explains, Yeah, Three Gorges Dam was, uh, uh, was a massive, large-scale one, but one of the uh, proponents of the dam project was uh, it, it creates uh, potential water supplies to many regions, which is otherwise dry. There's a lot of um, benefits to it, but uh, the negative side is also a huge issue in the sense uh, all the land which now has to be uh, carrying this impounded water, all the um, uh, villages and also some of the submerged areas in Three Gorges and many other dams also, also have cultural sites. All this probably are lost because now that land is no longer there, it's submerged. The politics and power structures that led to the creation of the Quabbin at the expense of the existence of four towns have not gone away in the U.S. either. America is still a country with rapidly expanding energy infrastructure, from hydroelectric dams to solar and wind farms to oil and gas pipelines. Developing such energy infrastructure requires copious amounts of land, and usually this infrastructure is built on the land of those who lack the money, power, and organization to protect their communities. So who wins and who loses in so-called progress comes calling for more land today. Looking at the Dakota Access Pipeline, having been built within the last few years, we can see striking similarities and notable differences to the creation of the Quabbin. The Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL to be hip, is part of a roughly 1,000 mile underground pipeline that's used to move crude oil from oil fields in North Dakota all the way down to Texas for processing. More importantly to our story though, it was set to be constructed beneath the Mississippi and Missouri rivers several major water supplies, and the sacred lands that were a part of the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. This story begins differently than the creation of the Quabbin, because it begins with a struggle. The creation of the Quabbin was met with quiet denial at the absurdity of people forcibly losing their land to build a reservoir. The announcement of the pipeline caused an immediate uproar among the Standing Rock Sioux, Cheyenne River Sioux, and Meskwaki tribes who were outraged by these plans. Further justifying their anger, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that was in charge of the project allegedly had not properly investigated the effects of the pipeline on the environment and historic sites in the area, including serious worries that the pipeline would disrupt native grave sites and could contaminate Standing Rock's dominant water source. Actually, saying that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had not properly investigated the effects is the, quite the euphemism here. They had failed to consult or consider how this pipeline would impact the native tribes in the region at all, despite a legal obligation to do so. The people turned to their last resort, protest. The movement went viral. Over the summer of 2016, the protest camp swelled to over several thousand people in size, attempts to remove the protesters by the police drew national, mainstream media attention. Yet, once the oil companies involved started getting anxious in the fall, workers began to bulldoze sacred tribal grounds, attack dogs or release on unarmed protesters, and riot police began forcibly clearing the protest camp with military gear and water cannons to clear the path in the freezing weather. 
Typical. The project was even formally rebuked by the UN Human Rights Council, which expressed its disapproval of the US government for both their disregard for the legal rights and dignity of the Sioux and for their treatment of protesters, which violated the terms of the Geneva Convention. The residents of the Swift River Valley didn't believe that the project would ever possibly happen, so they didn't protest as plans for the project passed over their heads, past the point of no return. But the people of Standing Rock were well aware of what was going to happen to their community, and they stood up. But through it all, the pipeline was still built. With the construction of this pipeline, farmers and native tribes lost out. Who won? And how did oil executives wind up with so much power that they were able to completely bulldoze past the protests of native tribes armed with a plethora of proof that the U.S. government was floating regulations and treaties to build the pipeline? Unlike his predecessor, Donald Trump had no problem tying his name to the construction of the DAPL. The majority stakeholder of the DAPL is a corporation called Energy Transfer Partners. Donald Trump conveniently previously held an estimated half a million to a million in Energy Partners stock. Before being elected to the presidency, he sold that stock. But the CEO of ETP, Kelsey Warren, donated over a hundred grand to Trump's 2016 campaign. Both Warren and ETP itself have heavy financial ties to numerous other politicians, including Secretary of Energy Rick Perry, who both served on ETP's board of directors and at one point received $6 million from them for an unsuccessful presidential bid. The presidential memorandum signed by Donald Trump in early 2017 to expedite the construction of the pipeline sealed the fate of the Standing Rock protesters, and thus the DAPL was built right within the major rivers water sources, and sacred grounds they were trying to protect. This podcast is supported by data scientist Lindsay Pettingill, who wants everyone to know that they should hang in there, find people that believe in them, and speak truth to power. So what allowed the federal government to accept the many breaches of treaties, survey processes, and the Geneva Convention in order to build the Dakota Access Pipeline? On one hand, the project targeted Native Americans, who have historically had disproportionately low access to civil rights and numerous atrocities committed against them by the U.S. government. On the other end, money and people are often recycled between the oil industry and the government by using vast reserves of cash to cultivate good relationships with power holders in the government and targeting a group of people whose protests Americans are used to ignoring. Oil companies were able to leverage their political power to the point that the federal government was willing to overlook all of the complaints raised to get the Dakota Access Pipeline built. Now, this all feels very reminiscent of the behavior of James Michael Curley, the governor whose motivations for building the Quabbin included sneaky dealings to his own political allies. Looking at the creation of the Quabbin and the construction of the DAPL side by side, we can see three things that allowed these projects to be completed, even despite the humanitarian consequences. The first two are pretty simple. High demand for resources, plus targeting groups who have less political capital with which to defend themselves. Easy. But the third common factor between the Quabbin and the DAPL is money and politics. These two projects were given a tremendous amount of political momentum because they were supported by politicians who appear to have personally benefited from their completion. If not for Curley in the 1930s and Trump and Perry in the 2010s, these already controversial projects 
might not have succeeded. The modern world is more focused on the personhood of marginalized groups than it was in Curly's time. This means that it takes more and more money for it to be socially acceptable to undermine people's sovereignty for the sake of expanding energy infrastructure. In both cases, it seems that money played a vital role in overriding obstacles to these projects. Without money being on the side of expanding infrastructure, either of these projects could have been toppled by concerns of eminent domain being misused, bulldozing regulations, or a myriad of other issues. We're approaching the beginning of a new administration, one which claims it will prioritize the well-being of marginalized communities and clean energy. No matter the administration, poor and native populations still de facto have less protection under American law. If the Biden administration tries to expand green energy infrastructure, they'll need land, just as the Dakota Access Pipeline and Quabbin Reservoir did. They'll also face opposition from both oil giants and a Senate in which their party will likely hold a minority. Going after land that Native Americans have sovereignty over can make a hard job just that little bit easier, because historically, they've been able to get away with it. Therefore, it is up to us to make sure these concerns are heard so that the Biden administration does not continue the pattern of pushing disenfranchised groups off their land. Joe Biden might go down in history with the likes of James Curley and Rick Perry as a politician who trades money for political support, or he might not. But the more attention Americans pay to issues of eminent domain, the more expensive it will be for him to continue the pattern of developing energy infrastructure in a way that harms communities that it does not directly benefit. Thank you so much for listening. We want to take a moment to thank our supporters who enabled us to create this podcast while working remotely throughout this entire end-of-the-world scenario of a year that was 2020. So here's a shout-out and a huge thank you to Graham Brinson, Craig Kafura, Derek Perkins, Tom Hertweck, John Gilbert, Lena Srivastava, Jennifer Bonder, Nicholas Croce, Haley Newton, Emma Barrasso, Nusha Udden, Jean Yoon, Andrew Lieber, Judd Greenstein, Julie Lugton, Yu Ming Lu. Once again, thank you all so much for your support. We literally couldn't have done it without you. This episode of Final Examination was hosted by Nick Dostal and Jack Paris. Tomas Dvorak worked as the audio engineer and editor. It was written by Matt DePisa, Nick Dostal, and Jack Paris, who also worked as researchers. It was produced by Samantha Kramer, who also edited this podcast. This podcast was created by students at the University of Massachusetts Amherst as part of Political Science 390, a course on the politics of the end of the world led by Assistant Professor Paul Musgrave. It is licensed under a Creative Commons, no derivatives, 4.0 international license.